Welcome to the Good Athlete Podcast, the voice of the Good Athlete Project. Welcome to the Super Bowl episode of Good Athlete Podcast. Last year, we brought you legendary coach Mike Ditka, and this year, we've got another NFL legend. If you watch professional football or you've turned on ESPN anytime over the last decade, you know Merrill Hodge. He played most notably for the Steelers and a year for the Bears before turning into a highly respected and distinguished broadcaster and football analyst. I reached out to Merrill initially because I had just finished his book, Brainwashed, and was so intrigued by his ideas that I just had to say something. We made a connection and started a conversation that continues in today's podcast. You know, I've heard a number of times over the past couple years that longtime football fans find it challenging to watch professional football in the same way because of the dialogue surrounding concussions and CTE in football. Merrill's perspective is a really interesting one. Before I go into his bio, I will say this, and we get into it in the podcast, but the guy had to end his NFL career because of concussions, and when you hear the story, it's a little scary. We've come a long, long way since then, and it's interesting to hear how a man whose career ended because of concussions has fully reinvested in the sport that he loves and has developed him into the person he is today. He's a coach. His son is an all-star football player out at BYU. He's an advocate of the game and an advocate of player safety. Most importantly, he believes that player safety can only come by accurately looking at and diagnosing a problem. He believes there is hysteria surrounding CTE, and for more on his perspective, you gotta listen. I would recommend taking notes today. All right, a quick bio about Merrill. He is a graduate of Idaho State University where he earned a degree in education and minored in health and fitness. He was a four-year starter, set 44 school and conference records, two NCAA records, one for most receptions by a running back in a season, and the other for most receptions by a back in his career. In 1987, he was drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers where he played until 1993 and led the team in rushing and receiving in four of his first five years. In his third year, he set another record, again for receptions by a running back. Along with Hall of Famer Franco Harris, Merrill is one of only two Steelers to rush for more than 100 yards in back-to-back playoff games. He was the Steelers' Ironman of the Year two years in a row in 1989 and 1990. and was named to the All-Madden team in 1989. In 1993, he was signed by the Bears where he played for one year and then was forced to retire. We talk about that story in today's podcast. After his time as a player, he served as a host and analyst for a wide variety of ESPN programs, including SportsCenter and NFL Live. Again, if you tune into professional football, you know Merrill Hodge. And I'd highly recommend checking out his new endeavor, Your Call Football League. I'm inspired by Merrill's passion and energy for the game that he loves and the ideas he believes in. Today's podcast is an important one for anyone in sports. If you know someone who plays contact sports, the parents of someone who plays contact sports, or a coach involved in contact sports, please share this podcast. These ideas are essential. Football really grabbed my attention um, really at a young age, about age eight, because um, um, I saw it on television. But one of the first times I ever saw it on television, I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do as a kid. Um, and I've been playing sports too, so, um, it just made sense. Cause I was like, God, I've been doing that in the backyard. I had no idea they were doing it on television. So that's really what took my passion and drove me towards football. But I still played all other sports. Shoot, I even rodeo, even rodeoed as a kid and, uh, almost, yeah, almost became a, uh, a cowboy, <laughs> uh, before I, uh, 
I ended up being a commit myself to really playing football. That's pretty incredible. So, and then, uh, so when did that turn over, I guess? You, you saw it on TV, and, and who was the team? Like, are you, were you a Pittsburgh, were you a Steelers fan from the start, or who'd you follow at an early age? Well, actually, my two favorite teams actually were the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Chicago Bears. Walter Payton right? was my favorite player. Um, right. I idolized Walter. Um, just so I wanted to do, wanted to learn everything, um, uh, everything about him, all all the ways he did it, what he did, and how he did it. And I learned a lot from Walter Payton. One of the most powerful things I've ever heard a human being say was when he did an interview, and the interviewer asked him what makes him better than everybody else. And I, as a young kid, I was sitting there going, oh, my gosh, that's what I want to know. I mean, that's what yeah, I yeah. If I could do that, that would that would help separate me. And... He said something as profound as I've ever heard a human being said, and quite honestly, I, I've never forgotten it, and it um, it still resonates with me to this day. He just paused for a minute, and he said, I want it more than they do every day of the week. You know, um, at 6 in the morning, when nobody wants to go run that dirt hill with me, I want it more than they do. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday during the football season when 65,000 fans aren't in the stands, Cameras aren't rolling. I want it more than they do. And then on Sunday at one o'clock, I want it more than they do. And that uh, that stuck with me as a kid. I was 15 years old when I heard that. And um, and I do a lot of this when I when I speak. I share these kind of stories because what resonated with me then still resonates with me today, and is still 100% true. That is a choice that I decided to make a part of how I practiced, how I trained, and how I played from then on. And I learned it from from how Walter Payton had used it in his life. And what I try to tell, um, hopefully get people to realize that that's, everybody can do that. There's not a person. It doesn't have to be towards sports or football. It can be towards anything that one is passionate about or striving for in their life. That type of commitment, that type of mindset is really necessary and it's important. And anybody can do that. You know, mm-hmm. The key, the key part to the whole thing, though, which he emphasized, it's every day. And then a lot of people can do it for a day or two, and then they go back to their old ways. And then they're always like, oh, I didn't, you know, then they're like, how come I didn't accomplish it? I was like, that's what separates the real, you know, people like Walter Payton. I mean, that's what made him great. And I got to confirm that later in life when I, you know, I'm playing for the Chicago Bears. I got to meet Walter and we could do a whole podcast where um, just on Walter people Bain. shared, yeah, people shared stories with me to just validate that. You know, he wanted more than anybody else, so that really, I, really sparked it and um, and sent me on my way as a kid. I, I believe it, and you know that we're sitting here in Chicago, so Walter Payton is like, I mean, he's the man. You know, people talk about Michael Jordan all the time, still deservedly so, but from a from a process perspective. Um, he, he is the guy he's still revered around here. He was humble by all accounts, humble, but not, not, uh, overly. So, I mean, he was wildly confident, but his confidence oftentimes all the time was built through his efforts, at least as far as we've heard. And like you say, one of the things that we value so much about sports is that if you can meet a kid exactly where you were, a young kid who was athletic and passionate about sports and saw football on TV and said, that's what I'm going to go do. If you can identify the process of becoming a better athlete and then apply it to the other areas of one's life, I mean, you've got kind of the perfect recipe 
for improvement and for setting people on a, a path to success, I would think. I don't think there's any doubt, and it doesn't have to be just towards sports. You know, it can be in a, a variety of, of, of venues, to be honest with you. you know, that, that's what we, when I speak throughout the country, I just try to, you know, sales, any type of business, um, things that you're passionate about. Um, and again, really challenges too. It's a, it's a mindset that's vital and critical when you're faced with things you didn't see coming, you know, and life has a way of handing us curves that we didn't see coming. So there's, um, it's just a beautiful habit to be able to develop and be able to lean on when you least expect it. And the more you practice with it and the more you learn how to train your mind with that, just the more, the better you become, the more powerful you become in, in the, uh, attack mode when struggles or challenges come your way. I mean, it's exactly right. It's exactly right. And that probably is what leads us into the next part of the discussion because um, you and I know so well, firsthand and otherwise, uh, how valuable sports can be as an educational tool, as a platform for all the most important sorts of education that apply to all parts of the world. So that process took you into the NFL where you played nine seasons. And help me if I get these stats wrong, but uh, you picked up about 30, just over 3,100 yards rushing, more than 2,000 yards receiving, and about 34 touchdowns. Also happens to be Walter Payton's jersey number, so maybe that's that could be appropriate in a way. Well, I'm good with the Walter Payton. There you yeah. go. And then, uh, and then, uh, but then it was uh, it was cut short due to, and, and you got to help me fill in the the holes of the story here. But it was it was two fairly se- severe concussions, and probably the concern was that you were sent back into play too soon. Am I right on that? Yeah. Well, basically, just I had improper care with the first one, and then that's yeah. really where you know, I mean, people have just made this way more complicated than it needs to be and they've blurred a bunch of stuff together that doesn't belong together Mm -hmm. and it was really just improper care i mean and that right there um keep in mind that's in 1994 right so people have to always keep um uh, things in perspective and why i say that is um was there a level of understanding with cognitive testing at that time, or what was that level? Only the Pittsburgh Steelers were doing it, okay? And yeah, they'd been yeah. doing it since 1991. And, you know, the neuropathology world, brain world, if you want, you know, if they're so smart, if they were so brilliant, and if they knew so much, you know, when it comes to, like, you know, people say, well, you know, the NFL knew about um, cognitive testing before cognitive testing came around. I would love you to show me that evidence. Brain yeah. world, as smart as they were, were um, had never thought about doing something other than in a personal evaluation of a guy, an MRI of a guy. It was Chuck Knoll that challenged Joe Maroon, who's mm-hmm. one of the great minds in all of uh, the, the brain world, and to come up with something, another test, another tool to evaluate. And right. he met with Dr. Lovell, and that's where they eventually come up with, you know, baseline testing, cognitive testing, but even and I know Dr. Maroon is a dear friend. I know Dr. Lovell, a dear friend. When I talked to them back in 1994 when Chuck Knoll did that, they were, I'm excuse me, 91 when Chuck Knoll challenged them. Even they were like, oh, what do we do? And so we created this cognitive test, and they're like, we don't know what it's going to do. I mean, but it's another tool, and it's another way to evaluate. It's not the golden goose. Mm-hmm. But the reason I say that is because you always have to remember where you are and what was going on at that time. It would be like this. You know, players – 
that played all the way up to that. I mean, you can and people can people can be angry, they can be furious that um, they didn't have the baseline testing or what exists today. Okay, in 2018. Okay, from 30 years later. Okay, 30 plus. When you look at um, where we are today, um, that'd be like the Pilgrims being pissed off that they didn't have uh, planes, trains, and automobiles. They had to use a covered wagon when I go. I mean, that's just it's ridiculous to angry about something that didn't exist and there was no knowledge. Um, so that being said, when I get to Chicago, they didn't even have they didn't have baseline testing. They didn't have a neurologist on staff. Whereas the Steelers had Joe Maroon since 1986. So um, when you look at the different levels of discrepancies with how they're caring for this injury or looking at it. Um, that's why I um, really took that doctor to court because even at that, even at even at that, even in those times and at that time, what we knew at that point, you still can't clear somebody over the phone, which is what happened to me. No matter how severe the head trauma, and mine was severe, mm-hmm. five days later, you just, you just can't do that. We, we you owe it to, and my thought process at that time though was purely about NFL players. I mean, you got to remember where I was at that time. That's in the nineties, okay. It's not today. Don't use information today. Go, oh, why were you thinking like that in the 90s? What did you know in the 90s? Okay. And you got to always keep going back there. Is that was unacceptable. Even, even in 1994, that was unacceptable. Yes, they didn't have baseline testing. Could I be angry and frustrated with them that they didn't have that? Sure. But guess what? I mean, that's a learning, evolving process. Okay. Um, that's why it's taken so long to get it everywhere. And it's still not everywhere. There's still a lot of sports and, um, areas that don't have that kind of those kind of tools, which we're, we're working mm-hmm. on. But what I'm what I'm really getting at is that because of that improper care, not only did my I, it cost me my career, nearly took my life. And if we care for the injury properly, like we have those tools today and the availability today, it makes all sports, all activities. Because listen, head trauma can happen out in your backyard or recess at lunch at any school in America. I mean, in your own home, slipping in a shower, car accident. And you can, it can happen in all areas. So wouldn't it be better to know how you can care, you should care for head trauma, the w- treatments and therapies that are available today and work today that we didn't have in the first 90 years of playing football and contact sports and um, in the history of life, if you want to go that far. That far. Yeah. Um, that make it just a better, safer environment. So wouldn't it be better to know all of those things, care right. for it properly, and not be in fear if you do have a concussion because it could happen in an accident form, but no ways to care for it and treat it to help your your kids get back to normal before they return back to that activity, uh, whatever it may happen, even if it's slipping in a shower. You know, I mean, it's exactly right. It's it's a it's a different world, and and you don't want it to be like this, but it is like this. Um, it, it took uh, cases just like yours um, to kind of really push this thing forward. And it's no longer a conversation having like, it's, it's no longer a maybe thing. It's an absolute. And, and that might have been one of the very real kicking off points that has pushed this research forward, uh, pushed the tools forward to where they're at now and all that kind of stuff. You mentioned it almost took your life. I read that story in the book. Um, pretty startling. Could you take us back to, to that day in Chicago? Because you, you were only able to play, unfortunately, uh, one season with the Bears. Yeah, unfortunately. It was actually a Monday night game and yeah. um, um, in Kansas City. 
And, and I took a, a shot from Derek Thomas, who tackled me from my right, who, um, who tragically lost his life, unfortunately, um, in a car accident. But um, it was on a Monday night game. Actually, it was a preseason game. And they actually took me to get an MRI to make sure I, well, I didn't have any bleeding. Go back to what I said. That was really kind of what they used to think about, about those, those times. Evaluating you, you know, talking to you, looking at you, watching, and then making sure you didn't have some type of bleeding, especially if you're going to jump on a plane and fly back to Chicago, which was real concern. They didn't want that to happen and have something happen. I didn't have any of that. Um, I flew back home. Um, the next morning, I had a car pick me up and bring me to the facility. Cause I, was, I mean, I, I just didn't feel, I mean, it, it rocked my world. I mean, I walked yeah. in the training room and Fred Cato goes, how you feel? And I'm like, I feel great. And I didn't feel great. I felt like dog crap. And he's like, really? Why don't you look in the mirror? Because you don't look very good. And I looked in the mirror and I just, I did. I had like a glossy look to me. I was like, wow. I mean, I can't even fake it. Um, they're like, you know, we have a Monday night game. So this is Tuesday. Our last preseason game is Friday. So I didn't play the last preseason game. But I wasn't going to play anyway. So that was irrelevant. Um, after the game is when I got the phone call on a Saturday from the doctor, and he just asked me how I was feeling. I was still having a headache, but keep in mind, 1994, okay, they didn't tell you that a headache was a symptom, you know, mm-hmm. or, or or there was any type of things to to share with them on what you should be. They were struggling cognitively in some ways. So those things weren't available. In 1994, that kind of information wasn't there. Right. That was not dialogue you had, where it's a very common dialogue now. Um, and I said, oh, that's all fine. And he's like, all right, just get ready for opening day. So I went back to practice. And about five weeks later, I took a very similar blow, um, similar circumstances. This time, though, I cut my chin open. So they were actually fixing my chin and, I guess, talking to me. And that's when I wasn't really responding. And mm-hmm. that obviously confirmed, took me to the locker room. Um, and then there's when I, I went into cardiac arrest. Um, ironically, they're trying to resuscitate me. I, I actually, they, they tell me I just, I actually jumped up and walked to the ambulance. And the really next thing I remember, I don't remember any of that in the training room. I just remember being in the hospital the next day, wondering what was going on. In fact, I hit myself in the head with a cast I had they put on my hand because I had broken my hand a couple weeks earlier hmm. against the New York Jets, but I wouldn't let them cast it so I could play. I'd created a brace that allowed me to play without putting a cast on my hand. And I went to scratch my hand about knocking myself out again. <laughs> I didn't know I had a cast on my hand. So it was, um, that was, that's what ended it, yeah. Well, and, and I got to tell you, one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you again is um, I heard a version of that story a while back when I, when I first started hearing about um, the, the research about concussions and the theories regarding CTE and all that stuff, I had heard about your case um, early on. And I'm telling you, Merrill, I told uh, my friends, my family, I'm like, this is a guy that we got to watch because um, here's the situation. Intensity and duration matter when it comes to any sort of damage or whatever. And um, it feels like, I mean, dude, you, you, you got it about as intensely as, as you could have, right? You got a uh, Hall of Fame caliber players. Um, your career ended because of a concussion, cardiac arrest due to the complications of this whole deal. Um, and, I, and I say that because here you are, I don't know how many years later, 25 years later, something like that, um, and you seem to be doing well. And I, and I don't know 
you know, I, I don't know the, uh, the ins and outs, but you are, you're writing books, you're speaking, um, you're highly active, you've been in broadcasting for a long time, um, you, you, you are a coach, you're a proponent of football and USA football, you're, you're very active in all those ways, you're also very healthy. What did it look like? What it, what it, can you map us out a little bit from post-career until now? How, how have you been living? Because if I'm not mistaken, there was sort of a lingering fog after that happened. And then uh, because of a lot of the initiatives that you took and the things that you now know, um, you, you started to steadily improve and, and thrive thereafter. So what did that well, look like? Well, here's something that's been lost, you know, with uh, the world we live in, which is um, uh, it's the world of excuses. Um, there's absolutely no accountability anymore with anybody. Um, everybody wants to blame, blame, blame. Um, uh, one of the things that I've, I'm involved in too is I, uh, I help, um, I help launch some new technology in the, and we play pro football. We play a game where fans call our plays. And Mike Sherman and I, Bear fans might remember him being in Green Bay, um, um, was the guy who helped me. Uh, he and I launched it together last year and, um, he was one head coach. I was the other head coach. And I have one thing sitting on my desk, um, doesn't matter who comes in there, whether it's a coach or a player. Don't give me excuses. Give me solutions. Mm-hmm. Because and, and I didn't it didn't sit there first, but what happened is a few players came in and all they had to do, all they had were excuses. And I mean and I'm like, okay, you know what I mean? As we walk through their excuses, who's responsible for that? Okay. Um they're responsible. Ninety nine percent of the things that happened to these kids came in to address me, they were responsible for. They were accountable for it, but they kept trying to find other excuses. Now, listen, what happened to me was tragic, and I could argue, I mean, the level, just getting clear of phone, unnecessary. I, I deserved more than that. I should have had more than that, even in 1994. Um, that's why I went to Congress in 2009. Um, and keep in mind, I'm sitting there with Boston University. They're so brilliant. You know, they know so much. And I'm sitting in 2009, pleading with Congress to establish protocol for ages 8 to 18. We were doing it in the NFL and the NCAA, but nothing for the 99% of where our athletes are. They're 8 to 18. They're not in the NFL. They're not in the NCAA. They're 8 to 18. And we right. weren't doing anything there. Um, and why would I be pro- so proactive there? Because I'd been doing, implementing these type of things. I ran sh- camps in Chicago um, when I when I was there. I started running camps in 91. I started coaching youth football in 2003 when my son started playing. And I established protocol, head trial protocols. And that really protocol was very simple, not confusing or difficult. Is if you had any type of head trauma, you were removed. And you didn't return to play. You didn't return to play. You didn't play the next week. The way we practiced, we were able to practice. We did this, I used my youth football, we practiced twice a week. And we had one 15 minute live contact, true football environment. Once uh, every two weeks for 15 minutes, and we were a good football team. Our kids knew how to block, tackle, um, take on blocks, get off blocks. People talk about oh, tackling. If you hear people say, "Well, you know, we we do," anybody who argues, "Oh, you should have flag over tackle," they have never coached youth yeah. sports, and they know nothing about youth sports. First of all, it shouldn't be a debate or an argument. It should be all of these options kids have today. And if you keep talking about, well, you know. Um, you, you, you can still kind of learn how to tackle when you're playing flag or seven on seven. No, you can't. I mean, that's not, first of all, 
you, you don't you you only learn about a third of it, and that's and tackling is not the only thing you're doing. How about right. taking on a tackle? How about block, getting off a block, taking on a block, getting off a block? I mean, there's all kinds of things that need, need to be taught in the game of football. So people who say that um, never coached youth sports and they have no concept of what they're talking about. And if they're selling you that flag football is not, you're not going to get hurt, they've lost their mind. I've had more injuries with kids who have don't have pads on, don't have headgear on, and everybody's flying for a football. There's going to be collisions. Okay, you can't go out of the backyard and just play a game of tag, attack, or people, kids running around, and accidents will happen. Collisions are going to happen. Yeah. Don't let them sell you thinking, oh, you're not going to get hurt. That is, that is an absolute lie. And yeah. if they talk about, well, you, know, you shouldn't start tackle to age 14, you need to ask yourself why. Anybody who says that, first time I heard that, I'm like, okay, they've never coached youth football. And if they did, they have forgotten something that critical happens. At age 14, puberty. You go from 105 to 165 around age 13, 14. There's a two-year span. It depends on what kid, you know, kids are a little different. And I can tell you from my experience, 7 to 11 is a weeble wobble stage. They're bumping into one another. Okay, the collisions and contact, especially with equipment today, okay, um, doesn't mean you can't have a concussion. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is in my nearly 15 or 15 years of coaching 8 to 18, I had two concussions, and they were in ages 13 and 14, when the kids yeah. hit puberty and got bigger, faster, and stronger. Yeah, well, you, you tap on something that's so important from our perspective. The Good Athlete Project is all about, really, like you said, asking why. It's about intentionality. Like why, why would you ever – I've also heard, and I bet you have too, that maybe around 18 or something like that, we could have – um, students essentially opt into this environment, just like you would select smoking once you're 18 or whatever. It just, it does not align with, with human behavior, adolescent psychology, and like you mentioned, just the physiology, the, the, the growth and the hormonal and chemical changes that are happening in these young people. It feels, it feels like, like you, to your point, really well-intended people who want to keep their kids safe but don't truly understand the mechanisms of what's going on. Listen, I love my kids without end. I wrote this book because I'm a concerned parent. I'm a, I love nothing more important to me than my kids. So yeah. if I thought, and if I followed this fact-finding mission, these research, if I'd have found out that there was any potential danger or harm, aside from, listen, every day you could have accidents. There's nothing safe. My son's first concussion slipped in the shower. Four yeah. days before his first bowl game, ineligible to play because you just don't have you don't have to have a concussion in the environment you're playing in um yeah. to not allow you to play in that environment wherever it may happen you're just not going to be able to play unfortunately he was in a shower and he was ineligible to play um he's probably, even though he was a backup he just you know he wouldn't have been able he wouldn't have been able to play the game had they needed him they didn't so it all worked out but um it's not just in sports okay it can be in any activities and all activities. And because you have a concussion does not mean you're going to get CT. There's no scientific evidence of that. There's the other jump. That's right. There's no idea, uh, scientific evidence of that. And subconcussion is science fiction. Okay? Hmm. Nobody – there's more scientific literature of how subconcussion is misleading, improperly identified, can't be measured, poorly described. They haven't done the proper steps. Why haven't they done the proper steps? Because you can't measure that. 
You can't measure it. So that'd be like jumping on a trampoline your whole life, going to a theme park, having a pillow fight or any type of activities you did as a kid downstairs, roughhousing, your backyard, recess, lunch at school. I mean, we'd all be doomed. It wouldn't be anybody the age 18. You know, people going back to this age 14 that you want to start tackle football, nobody asks why. Why? Well, I start asking why. Why do you do? Why, why would you even bring up that age? Why would you say it's okay? Oh, the brain must be fully developed by age 14. That's why. Because you say you're protecting kids. Well, when you ask that question, what is the, what's the answer? No, it's age 25. Oh, well, yeah. so wait a minute. So why is the brain less important at age 14 than it is from 7 to 11? Can you explain that to me? Oh, well, 7 to 11, you're developing an IQ, an emotional thing. Time out. First of all, 7 to 11, the impacts are are significantly less than they are once you get into puberty, okay? And I know that factual from a parent, a coach, and a player at every level. Okay, now, so at age 14, the develop, the brain still develops. But why is the brain less important at age 14 than it is at age 11 to 13 when the impacts are more severe when you get to age 14? Well, Again, no scientific evidence of that, no answer for that. And to sit there and say that's not going to happen in any other type of uh, – in seven-on-seven or flag is an absolute lie. There is as many head trauma accidents and more severe when you don't have headgear on than when you do. Parents start just asking those questions. You use common sense and just go, at least, how did you play? What activity environment did you live in? I guarantee a majority of your parents that listen to this and never had a head trauma protocol. They probably played, I played youth sports practice five days a week, and we tackled our coaches as a scrimmage on Thursdays before our game on Saturday. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different landscape. And, and um, regarding the why, I actually I wrote an article recently, and the, the, the core idea of it was uh, essentially parents, do you want to keep your kids from football or do you want to keep your kids safe? That's the really most important. That, that's that's the only question, as far as I'm concerned. And to to your point, here's my theory from like a psychological perspective uh, as why 14 and not seven. I don't think it has anything to do with the neuroscience. I think it has everything to do with the way the kid looks. You mentioned adolescence. I think it's easier for a parent to sort of get, become comfortable with the idea that their uh, their son who just started shaving is playing some a contact sport like football um, than their, you know, the kid, the, the prepubescent kid who they still think of as their baby. I think it is completely coming from the emotional perspective. And I, and I get it. That's part of what makes us human. It's a necessary component. But the why and then the science behind the why just doesn't seem, doesn't seem to be there. And I've got a study I want to share with you real quick. Um, to your point about the frequency, you know, and I think this is something that parents should equip themselves with. Uh, there is a study that essentially examined the rates of concussion uh, per 1,000 exposures. So practices and games, and uh, for every 1,000 exposures, which sports were most likely to see concussions? And okay, football was among the top three. Football was 0.37 during the regular season. It was actually different regular season to spring practice, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but women's ice hockey was number one. Women's soccer was number two. Uh, men's soccer, wrestling, lacrosse, then women's lacrosse, women's basketball, uh, field hockey. Field hockey, 0.16 per concussions per 
uh, 1,000 exposures, football is 0.37. You wouldn't even, you know, from a from an outsider's perspective, you wouldn't even put those two things in the same category. And if you go even further, again, to your point, the number one reason uh, people are admitted to the emergency room for uh, traumatic brain injury or mild tra- traumatic brain injury is just slipping and falling. Uh, so, and, and not to discount the fact that there's something that we need to look at and there are dangers in the world and we got to keep our kids safe. But, you know, if, if, if you're a parent, uh, you'd think you'd want the actual facts to keep your kids safe. So in, in route to finding the actual facts, you paired up with a guy, Peter Cummings. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you guys bumped into each other and maybe uh, how people can keep an eye out for the good science um, and then some of your concerns about some of the science that's uh, maybe kind of towing the line and making assumptions. Well, you said something there. You know, um, you, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't you wouldn't think that you know all those sports were involved or accidents or um, the environment. Just, that's because the people have created a narrative and created a pigeonhole and blamed one thing: football. To add to what you just said there, um, part of this journey was talking to a guy who'd been doing research and studies on all um, head trauma, I mean, all concussion treatment centers throughout the eastern seaboard. And he asked all of them if we were to eliminate football. It didn't, it wasn't, it didn't exist in our society. How much would that affect all the business of head trauma? Less than 10% of their business would be affected. It would be, it would go, it would not affect us at all because of all of the head trauma that happens in all other um, aspects. Yeah. Of just life, okay? Um, which goes to why um, I wrote the book, number one. Mm-hmm. I'm a concerned parent. I want to know the, the facts. I went on a fact-finding mission. My experience, uh, my connections and relationships allow me to have some resources in the neuropathology world where mm-hmm. I can sit down with somebody who's a trained neuropathologist, somebody who's qualified, not somebody who wrote a paper you know, it has a PhD. There's a value there, but there's a there's a lane they belong in. People who have dozen done residencies, um, studied cut brains. Okay, that's the people you want to talk to. Those are the people that um, that you value because they've done it. They understand it. I went from the, throughout this country into Canada, and everyone that I would sit down and visit with would always say the same thing to me. Meryl, we the, the CTE is a pattern. Okay that we have discovered, we don't know what causes it. And we don't know what it causes. We have people that have this pattern, never played football, never mm-hmm. played sports, never had a history of head trauma. We have found the pattern in a one-year-old, a four-month-old. We have found, and I'm like, time out. Why do we only hear about football or hockey? And we have, there's only 300 cases in the medical journal in the entire world. There's been 333 articles written in the New York Times alone on this subject. Right. There's more articles right. written on it than cases in the world. And when you have all these cases that don't know never played football, never had a history of head trauma, and keep in mind, the female gender hasn't even been considered. I get disgusting journalists um, like Kristen Brennan at the New York Times when I was trying to, we were trying to present facts to her that she was unaware of, explain them to her. She kept going, "Oh, Title IX. That's why Title IX has nothing to do with this." Girls have been being active and playing sports, have committed suicide, have had all kinds of you don't uh, of issues. They could be looked at. You don't have to play professional soccer and then pass on to be looked at. 
That's right. the most, and then draw back to a youth experience and draw uh, a, a youth connection there. Okay, that's ridiculous. Okay, mm-hmm. that's moronic to even think that way, and to not even uh, explore all of the other options is mm-hmm. is disgusting from a journalistic perspective. But want nothing to do with that, and created a, an excuse that is not an excuse. It, it is it is borderline ignorance just to say something like that. So you exclude half of the country, and, and you still think you're going to have some type of an answer? Right, I've been working right. on Alzheimer's for 100 years, over 100. Mm-hmm. Hundreds of doctors, hundreds of papers, thousands of brains have been looked at, and they still don't know what causes it? And you're yeah. going to tell me that they've done a pinprick of research compared to what they've done in Alzheimer's, and they know what causes it? They right. know what it causes? Are you kidding me? That's almost embarrassing that you we've allowed this narrative to get to where it is to think that really we're that dumb, that somebody's not going to read the scientific literature one day. And let me just emphasize this. I have a website as well, brainwashedbook.com, where we we display the scientific literature. We do podcasts on the scientific literature so that people can read it. We Be skeptical of me. Go ahead. I don't have anything to hide. Okay, My agenda is the truth and the facts of what science says from the scientific literature. When you read the scientific literature, it is completely contra- contradicts what you see in the media. And I actually have challenged people. If you find scientific literature that uses the word cause or link, concussions to football, CTE, um, um, concussions to CTE, subconcussion to CTE, you even find the scientific literature that subconcussion is scientific. If you find that, send it to me. And I'm going to tell you this. People have actually sent me articles from Sports Illustrated. That's Sports right. Illustrated is not a scientific journal, okay? JAMA is a scientific journal, okay? Go to That's JAMA right. and read those scientific papers. If you find out the facts, you will be mortified. You'll be like, well, this is not what they say in the media. This mm-hmm. is not what the science papers say. And what's probably most harmful, and this is directly uh, deliberate to Anne McKee, who is a doctor, who signed a Hippocratic Oath, who does know better, who has written scientific literature that says in her 90% paper she wrote, caution, you can't use this study that she just did because of its grotesque flaws, the methodology that is embarrassing. It's the lowest bottom barrel, um, um, uh, lowest level of science work you could possibly do to keep some ounce of credibility in your work. This word, these words are in there, caution. You can't use this study because of all the things I just mentioned that are flawed in this research. It's what it says in the scientific paper. She wrote it. Well, when she gets quoted in the media, she says about the study she just wrote that says, caution, you can't use this. i got to believe after doing that study, every football player has it. Well, what do you think everybody read? They didn't read the journal, the scientific journal. They read her quote. And then every parent, which I listen, I'm a parent. If I didn't know what I knew, or if I didn't know if I experienced what I experienced, lived what I've lived, know what I know, I don't blame parents. I love my kids without end, too. I want to protect my kids. The last thing I want is harm to my kids. Mm-hmm. When I have see parents ripping them out of sports and not letting them play, um, I do empathize with them. I do sympathize with them. And that's why, I mean, that's why I went on the, on the search, to find out the truth. Yeah. But... That's why I got involved, too. I tell parents all the time, I mean, find what your kids are passionate about. Feed that passion. Get involved with them. Make make a change. Make things different than you had it. 
you know. Yeah. And we've done that in sports, especially football is the leader. It is the most proactive of all sports. It is the best, safest environment. You tell me, you look at, especially you've got Pop Warner, USA Football, and listen, there's um, individual youth programs that do it right, too. Um, not all of them have to be under Pop Warner and Heads Up Football and USA Football. But if they are under head, uh, Pop Warner and Heads Up Football, you can know for a fact that they have to be certified, trained, and these protocols and principles are in place. So you right. know that it's going to be a safer environment. But educate yourself, inform yourself um, about um, all the activities your, your kids are in. Find out, you know, what's your protocol? And if they, if you ask them what's your head trauma protocol and they look at you like you have three heads, I wouldn't let them play either. That's right. Find a different environment. Find a different one or make a change there. So the best we can do is make, make this world better and safer along the way. To rob our kids and pull them out of sports with no scientific evidence is absolutely disgusting. Okay. Yeah. With equipment. Treatments, therapies, protocols, instruction that exist today versus when I played, or a mass majority. We've been playing this football for nearly 100 years. Mm-hmm. For 90 of it, we had no head trauma protocol, literally 90 of it, like none. So you're telling me if I give you any era that you can play sports, give me any era over the last 100 years. If you didn't pick today, you are completely uninformed. You are right. 100% uninformed. You would be like, yes. Let me go back and play today versus right. any 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 other era. I think you're right, man. And, and and to your point, I think there's there's probably no sport that's sort of reexamined itself more than football. And 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 probably as in cases like yours, I think the ball was probably dropped early on. But football has 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 changed. You know, you uh, they're sort of enduring the complaints that. That happened on Twitter and in social media, but still we push forward creating new tools and new initiatives to make this thing safer. And just to clarify a couple of things you said, uh, you mentioned JAMA, like the JAMA, the acronym you're referring to, Journal uh, of American Medical Association, the Journal of American, American Medical Association is not a New York Times op-ed. It is not, and you're right, the, the concern is that the headlines are not coming from from research institutions, the concern is that the headlines are coming from people who are drawing these patterns who are not neuropathologists. They don't understand the literature in any significant way. And uh, just to bring up the BU study again, so much, so much of this is just not predictive of society. You you know this. Every the 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 participants, the batch of people who participate, are not are not indicative of the societal norms. It is a completely self-selected or research laboratory selected group. So uh, one thing that came up, I know you know this name, Chris Nowinski. He has, they have, uh, I think the last I saw, and this is coming from his TED talk, uh, the last I saw, he had he had recruited 500 donors, brain donors, who have passed on. So th- this is a selected group Okay, a selected group of people, Chris, Chris and his foundation, they are trying to find people who have CTE so that we can study it um, and hopefully cure it, I think, is, is the hope of the Concussion Legacy Foundation. Now, of 500 people who they went out and recruited because they thought they had the exposure and the symptoms that would, that would essentially uh, lead to CTE, even this specific pattern of tau protein, which, as you mentioned, is indicative, supposedly, of, of the disease, that was only apparent in, in 300 of the 500. So the, uh, there, that's 300 of 500 
brains with CTE from a group that was selected because they were almost sure that this was going to be the sort of per person that these were going to be the people who had this disease. Now, I, I don't think you, like you keep saying, neither one of us want to see this pushed under the rug and pushed away for any any uh, sort of secondary agenda on our part. But to look at it clearly is the only possible way we can get ahead of this. I use a, a, a tree analogy frequently. Like if we get rid of football, we are clipping one branch from the tree that continues to grow. And that tree is exposure to things that might cause concussion, um, you know, the ability to rehabilitate from a concussion. We got to look, be looking at the whole picture, not just demonizing one sport. And I wonder if, you know, if we were in Canada, you mentioned Canada, if we were up in Canada, it's probably hockey that feels the brunt of this and not football. It's just because football is such a big, it's our, it's our multi-billion dollar pastime in America I, it, it's my opinion that that's why it's so much in the, the forefront of these discussions. Well, unfortunately, everything you said, listen, all of BU's work has been biased work, period. Yeah. End of story. It's biased. You'll never get the truth out of a biased work. End of story. Yeah. Um, when you look at um, the cases in this, they're in the medical journal. First of all, the, the science is screaming what I said. Mm -hmm. Stop. We don't know what this is. Okay. Right. I mean, we don't know what causes it. We don't know what it causes. Okay. You can't keep playing in sports and con contact sports and, and, and football or hockey specifically because you have all these cases where they never played sports and never played football or hockey. So right there, it right. tells you, okay, you can't keep targeting one area. It exists outside of the athletic arena. Okay. You know mm -hmm. what? And this is, um, these are scientific facts. This is visual evidence of what I'm about to share with you. I'm going to say it one more time. The pattern CT is a tau pattern. They don't know what causes it. They don't know what it causes. We all have tau patterns, okay? Tau is like, um, and they use the word disease. Now, I've always struggled with them. But why do you say disease? Yeah. And yeah. one guy, one neuropathologist, she said, well, your freck, a freckle on you is a disease. It's an abnormality of the skin. That doesn't mean you're going to get skin cancer. Mm -hmm. And then that kind of put it in perspective, like, in aging, we all have tau. You know, is it going to mean we're going to have issues in life? Has no, that's, there mean, but no, that has, that has no bearing on if you're going to have issues in life if you have some tau deposits. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what I'm about to say, these are contributors to all brain health, cancers, and cardiovascular disease. Not in any particular order, but these are all factors. Obesity. Fair. Obesity, which consists of sugar consumption, 25 mm -hmm. pounds is considered of excess fat is considered obese. So don't think you got to be 50 to 100 or you can't walk. 25 pounds of excess fat is obese. Yep. Sugar consumption is the poison of America. Inactivity, drugs, alcohol, mm -hmm. opioids, all of those are leading contributors to the three things I just meant: our brain health, cardiovascular disease and cancers and there's an epidemic of colon cancers right now in 30 year olds based on sugar consumption and obesity two other factors age and if you have a genetic link meaning some type of dementia or something in the family history okay of everything i just said two of them you don't control we don't control our age as mm -hmm. we move on in life we just hope we we live longer and we're and it's healthy but as we age, things go, 
genetics, like I said, you can't change your genetics, but if you knew about them, at least you can now help yourself, you know, avoid them. And how can you help yourself? By all the things I just said, the lifestyle you create, obesity, sugar consumption, inactivity, alcohol, drugs, opioids. All of those things are leading contributors. What are all, you watch all the TV shows right now, what are you seeing? You're seeing all these New Year's resolutions and what is the big one you see about? You see it, you hear it. Um, people who have changed their lifestyle from how they eat, they started becoming active. What's, what do you hear them talk about? They're happier, they're healthier. Um, they, they eliminated the heart issues that they have. No longer the diabetic levels that they were at, no longer a part of me. If you just use some common sense and focused on those things, did a little research on the things to confirm things one way or the other versus buy every, believe everything you see. So you read, do some work yourself, and that's why I'll go back to the website. I encourage you to do it. Read all the scientific literature. Read the papers that I have written. I have been doing this on and off 20 years with this book, really. Really dug into it for the last couple years, and I've been across this country, um, media tours. I have yet to run into anybody in the media that has done any research or read any of the scientific journals. Nobody has read them. They've sure. talked like they have. So you do your own work um, and get people to do that. And um, I'm not do you try don't you don't change my mind. I'm not, I'm not I'm not about changing anybody's mind. I'm about mm-hmm. opening your mind and giving you the information. You do with it what you want. Well, listen, that seems fair, Marilyn. <clears throat> the reason we were so excited to have you on today. Um, is because of that, right? You're clearly passionate about the space. As you've mentioned, your own son, Bo, is, am I right? Is he going to be a senior next year? Yeah. Yeah. He'll graduate in April. There you go. Well, congratulations to him on graduation. And thank you. I I think it's amazing. And, and the whole crew seems just hell bent on good information, equipping people with knowledge and, and empowering them to essentially make their own decisions but with the good stuff first. And for anyone out there who's interested, I absolutely, the reason I reached out again recently was uh, because I read the book. Um, I think it's worth picking up a copy, no question. Read through it, go to the website, um, and absolutely, if, if people want to find you, uh, what, what's the best way to do that? Certainly through the website. Are you a social media guy? or? or- oh, yeah, you can you go to brainwashbook.com. We have all of our social media stuff up there. And, and also my personal website, MerrillHodge.com. Um, it's just M-E-R-R-I-L-H-O-G-E all together, MerrillHodge.com. So those two ways or two websites will help you and give you information to um, help you with your search, too. And if you can't find it, you know, we, we have um, places on there and resources and information. To um, If you didn't get something, we'll, we can get the, we'll get the answer for you. You know, we'll we'll answer something that, that wasn't answered for you. If you were searching for something that wasn't there. You'll dig even deeper. I love it, man. All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Please keep doing the work that you're doing. I think we will all feel the benefits from it. So you're, you're a good man. Thanks for having me, brother. This week's episode is brought to you by Remind Recover. Remind Recover is a supplement that helps athletes support brain health. Similar to how you drink a protein shake to help your muscles recover after a workout, Remind Recover has been scientifically formulated to give you the nutritional building blocks to help support healthy brain function. I am a huge fan of Remind Recover. 
it is as close to the science as any supplement I've seen and feel free to check out their website for more it's remindrecover.com and when you go there if you want to place an order and I recommend it use the code GOODATHLETE for a discount on checkout